0: Okay, so we're still hanging around in the Gospel of Luke, and tonight what we're going to do is introduce a concept for uh, a couple of different themes that we find in the Gospel of Luke. They're found in some of the other Gospels as well, but these are a few prominent themes that we'll look at tonight and next week as we finish up this Wednesday study Luke has some themes that pop up, not just in the gospel, they're repeated also in the book of Acts. Uh, The book of Acts is kind of volume two of Luke's writing, and uh, these themes uh, come out in such a way that it helps us kind of see what he's trying to accomplish, which I think overall is to show God's purpose in bringing all people together together. Uh, in the kingdom of God. And you're going to notice at the bottom of the slide here that um, the themes that we're going to look at between now and next week are God's redemptive purposes, salvation for all alike, the blessings of poverty and the dangers of wealth, table fellowship, and the role of a disciple. And in this uh, thematic study, it will take us uh, into the book of Acts on occasion to kind of complete the thought, and uh, hopefully this will be helpful to you as you kind of see the uniqueness of Luke. So let's get started with uh, these themes. Let's talk about tonight God's redemptive purposes. When you look at the uh, Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, there's a phrase that pops up, and the first time that we see it is in Luke chapter 7. So if you have your Bible. Turn open to Luke chapter 7, and the section that is talking about Jesus and John the Baptist has some interesting uh, concepts. It talks about John being the forerunner, introducing Jesus, and then what's interesting is the commentary that follows it. So come down to verse 28 for a second. This is Jesus speaking, part of the red letters that we find in the Gospel of Luke. It says here, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And you might want to circle kingdom of God because that's part of God's ultimate redemptive purpose is to reclaim uh, humanity and um, the created order within the concept of the kingdom of God. His purpose will be understood by some people, but it is often overlooked as well. So in verse 29, it says, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus's words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. So they had prepared themselves. Uh, They were open to what God was doing in their midst. And then there's the contrast, and here's the phrase, but the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. So Luke is suggesting that those that had an openness to the kingdom of God um, were baptized by John, and the Pharisees and experts, we might put in quotation, of the law rejected God's purpose, and the way it was revealed is they were not open to the message that john came bringing so there you see a couple of concepts the kingdom of god uh all the people and the people that are highlighted in the gospel of luke acknowledge that god is with christ and yet uh that god's purposes were rejected by those that you would think would have received it um much more quickly than others that that were outside of judaism So there you see the phrase there, God's purpose. That's the only time it occurs in Luke. But you can see it occurs several times in the book of Acts. And I'm not going to look at all of them. But I do want to read Acts chapter 2, when on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given and we find that Peter gets up and he says, the coming of the Spirit is what was anticipated by the prophet Joel, and he quotes a part of Joel chapter 2, he then kind of pinpoints uh, those that should have known. Look at verse 22 of chapter 2 of Acts. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know this man was handed over to you by god's set purpose there's that idea again god's purpose and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross but god raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him so God's set purpose in other words there's this anticipation that what happened in the life of Christ and through his crucifixion was all part of God's plan. And then you can look at some of the other references, chapter 13, chapter 20, where it uses the same phrase, uh, God's purposes. Well, how do God's purposes come about? And that's where Luke will amplify that through three of three emphases, the sovereignty of God, the fulfillment of Scripture, and the scope of Jesus' redemptive work. So let's take a look at each of those and see how Luke develops those. So the first one is the sovereignty of God. Now, you'll hear this phrase, the sovereignty of God, if you had been um, exposed to A Calvinistic type of theology. That uh, Calvinism emphasizes the sovereignty of God kind of as the dominant attribute of God, that God does what he wants when he wants to do it, and he directs history according to that plan. So you see that in the Gospel of Luke, where God is accomplishing his purposes uh, by directing the events in human history. The real conundrum here is how God's sovereignty and man's free will interact with each other. Because for every verse that you find talking about God's sovereignty directing the affairs of men, you also see the choice of men using the free will that God has given to man to also either embrace it or not, as we just saw in that phrase where the Pharisees and experts in the law resisted God's purposes. They had a free will to do so. So how these two things come together ultimately is very mysterious. But one element that we see the sovereignty of God happening in the gospel of Luke is this four-letter word, must, M-U-S-T certain things must happen. In other words, God's purposes are going to be found through what Jesus must do. So if you're in Luke go back to chapter 2 and you'll see in verse 49 this come about uh Jesus is uh here in the temple as a boy um and what we find is as he stays back and his parents uh, were heading back toward their home village, they found out that Jesus was nowhere to be found. They doubled back and they find him in the temple. And if you come down to verse 49, um, it says, Jesus makes this statement, why were you searching for me? didn't you know i had to be in my father's house so some translations say i must be about my father's business so the niv here translates it with a little bit different nuance but it says in verse 50 they did not understand what he was saying to them in other words there are certain things that were directed by god that he had to be uh carrying out so he recognizes that even as a boy, that God had certain purposes in store for him, and that's what placed him in the temple. It's interesting, the response of Mary, his mother, verse 51 says, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart. In other words, there was something going on there that she recognized. In verse 52 says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So this is the first place where there's kind of an urgency of certain things had to happen, and Jesus recognizes it very early in his life, and that what's, that's what takes him into the temple. Now in chapter four, it's, it, he talks a little bit about what he needs to be about, and of course we've mentioned this section of scripture uh, in chapter four several times over in this study of luke because this is that synagogue episode where he gets up and reads out of the scroll of isaiah the prophet but it's interesting here that as he finishes up rolls up the scroll and says this is fulfilled in your hearing in verse 43 it then talks about what happens after that and um he leaves the synagogue he goes to the home of simon Uh, We're told um, it tells us then that he heals the sick and so forth. And then finally, uh, he's going to go to a solitary place. Verse 42, people are looking for him. And um, it says in verse 43, this is his comment in light of everything that had happened in the synagogue and through his miracles. It says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. In other words, I'm not just your local miracle worker here uh, in Nazareth. I have other places to go. I have other things to achieve. This is a part of God's will and work in my life. Now, where uh, where it occurs most often, this idea of must, certain things must happen, is when he talks about him suffering and dying. And here you'll see several verses in chapter 9, 17, 24, and so forth. So in chapter 9, just to use one as an illustration, what we find taking place is after Jesus sends out the 12 and then feeds the 5,000, what we're told is on an occasion where he asked Peter, who do the crowds say that I am? Uh, The different disciples have different opinions, and Peter speaks up and says, the Christ or the anointed one of God. And then verse 21 and verse 22 is very interesting. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. There's that word again. This is all a part of God's sovereign purpose uh, that he must die, he must be raised again. So there's other phrases like that in Luke. Um, he said, "I must go to your house, Zacchaeus." Uh, he says in chapter twenty-one, there are certain things, even wars and insurrections, that must occur before the end of time so the sovereignty of god compels jesus to carry out the purposes of god in the gospel of luke so um and again as we already looked at in chapter 7 verse 30 uh there were the pharisees and experts in the law that resisted that purpose and pushed back against it okay any thoughts there Now, with that emphasis there, what we find taking place is this isn't just in the moment. And that brings you to a second emphasis of uh, God's redemptive purposes. And that is the story of what Jesus needed to accomplish in his earthly ministry was anticipated in the Old Testament scriptures. And because God is sovereign, These things that are anticipated uh, are to be fulfilled. There's one caution I would have. One caution I would have with the sovereignty of God is it's very easy sometimes to think that it's very closely akin to uh, fatalism. That is, no matter what I do, this is what's going to happen. I don't think Luke presents it that way, but what he does show is that God has been preparing this moment in time for a long time, and so what Luke will do is he'll dip back into the Old Testament, and he'll, he will use some Old Testament passages, either through direct quotations or allusions. And say these things were written, or all that is written is to be fulfilled in the person of Christ. And again, in chapter four, that synagogue uh, episode, that's what he, Jesus stands up and says, Today, what is recorded in Isaiah is fulfilled in your hearing. But what's interesting here about the scriptures being fulfilled is how many times the word all that is written and and the word is written, is used. You could see numerous references there on the slide that all of these things were anticipated. Now, this has led certain theologians to suggest that maybe the way that we understand Old Testament passages of scripture are not fully understood until we ask the question, how does this point to Christ? And A lot of theologians will suggest that even some of the tougher passages that we find in the Old Testament need to be looked at through the lens and and anticipation of Christ's coming. So that's using Jesus as a hermeneutic to interpret certain passages that are difficult for us to even understand why some of the things that we find in the Old Testament are tolerated uh, and and um, so this phrase here, uh, it is written or all that is written, is one way of thinking about how the New Testament writers look back in their in their sash, uh, satchel of scriptures and see differently than what they saw before. Now the big example of that, if you want to go over to chapter twenty four. Of Luke is when the two uh, disciples that are on the road to Emmaus meet Jesus along the way and they don't recognize him, which is kind of strange because in this post-resurrection appearance of Christ, you would think just like Jesus showed his uh, nail-scarred hands to Thomas and the other disciples, you would think that these two would recognize him, but they don't. And so they're walking along the way here, and as they do so, what we find taking place is he opens up the scripture to them. So if you come down, um, and this is a long passage, so we don't need to, to harp on it too, too long, but in verse 25, there comes a point that he says this to the two disciples. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So even there, Jesus is saying these Old Testament scriptures are pointing toward him. And... um You see that at the very end of the chapter, after Jesus says that to the two on the Emmaus road, he appears to the disciples beginning in verse 36, and then verse 45, verse 44 rather, it says, this is him talking to his disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses. You are witnesses, rather, of these things. Um, Now, I think what is really difficult here is if you went back in the Old Testament and you read from the front to the end of the Old Testament, there might be a few passages of Scripture that you say, oh, that anticipates Christ, such as the suffering servant passages in Isaiah. But you'll notice here, it talks about how in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, all of these things are... Somehow fulfilled in Christ and point to, toward Christ. Well, in the Psalms, Jesus quotes a couple of the Psalms, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Some things like that. But for the most part, if we were reading through it, we would probably not go, that's pointing to Jesus. Most of us would say, what, huh? So this is an interesting hermeneutic. This is an interesting way of Luke saying there's a way of looking back in the Old Testament. And and I think his idea of it is written is this idea that history is going somewhere and this anticipation inches forward to where it is finally all coming together in the person and work of Christ. Okay, now that's difficult. I think that's difficult to get our hands around. But... um, does that make any sense, what I said, or are you completely confused about that? Because that's it's not easy. In what way are the scriptures fulfilled? Is it a one-to-one correspondent where we go, oh, there's something in the Old Testament that is directly fulfilled in Christ? There's some of those, but by far, the things that are written in the Law of Moses, Prophets, and Psalms have more to it than a direct one-to-one correspondence. There's an anticipation. This is how it fits under the sovereignty of God. The history has been moving towards something. And that's why Paul says in the book of Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world at the right point in time. Some thoughts there? So the sovereignty of God the fulfillment of scripture, and then uh, that, cu- that plan and that purpose of God just doesn't uh, stop with Jesus. This is where it goes on into the book of Acts as well. So you see here on this slide that the plan of God reaches from the works of God among Moses and the prophets, working through the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus, but then into the mission of the church and the story of the church that's found in the book of Acts. In other words, even after the life of Jesus, this story continues to go on, and it continues to be fulfilled. Now, what story is that? Well, it's the story of the inclusion primarily of the Gentiles, and that's a big emphasis in Paul's writings, and it's a big emphasis in the book of Acts as well. This isn't just a Jewish project. This is something that From the beginning of time, uh, as we find it in the scriptures, uh, it extends to the Gentiles as well. And in the book of Acts, there's kind of this uh, geography that's laid out. You shall be my witnesses in -hmm. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. But it's not just geographically, it's also ethnically as well. The big emphasis in Luke is that the gospel is moving out from Jews to Gentiles and even people that are on the margins in society, the outcasts, the sinners, the tax collectors, those type. Thoughts, comments, questions? Now, the big emphasis in the book of Luke That is anticipated here more than the other gospels is this purpose of God to bring about salvation uh, for mankind is for all people. Salvation is for all alike, whether Jews or Gentiles. And so we see in the gospel, Jesus is always taking a stand with people that are on the outskirts of the social circles that were respected you know, the rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the experts in the law, that type of thing. And what we find is a spotlight onto the Gentiles, and the Gentiles find their way into Luke's gospel in a variety of ways. Now, it's anticipated all the way back in chapter two, when in the temple, there's a man by the name of Simeon, and Simeon uh, talks about how this purpose includes the Gentiles. So if you want to go back uh, to chapter two of Luke, this is on the eighth day when Jesus is going to be circumcised, which is normal, customary Jewish procedure. And as he is in the temple area and uh, we find uh, this man, Simeon, uh, prophetically speaks about this sovereignty of God and what the purpose of God is uh, doing. He takes Jesus in his arms, and in verse 28 it says, he prays God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. So even in the first uh, week of Christ's life, on the eighth day, we see Simeon including the Gentiles into this purpose of God, and he calls it salvation, and he calls it a, uh, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and this is the glory of Israel, that they were the means, the conduit, whereby this blessing of God's purposes come to all people, not just to Israel. You'll see this strange word here on the slide here. This blessing is um, in Latin, uh, traditionally known as nun dimittis, Um, And it's basically the idea God has prepared salvation for all people. Okay, does that make sense to everybody? So very early on in Luke, he, uh, there's this emphasis as he records this uh, prophetic pronouncement of Simeon, but that's not where it stops. Uh, in the parables and teachings that uh, Luke records, uh, there's this inclusiveness of God's mercy that knows no bounds. So Uh, Go over to chapter 13 of Luke, and you'll see in verse 29 this taking place. Luke chapter 13, Mm -hmm. and here's some teachings of Jesus, and then you get to uh, this passage that he talks about the narrow way, um, the narrow door, and when you get down to the end of it, Uh, It says here, There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Here's verse 29. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, those who are last will be first and those who are first will be last. Now, he's making a direct hit on these religious leaders here that they have been shut out from the kingdom experience because of their um because of their desire to use their position for their own purposes rather than the purposes of God. So these are the type of things that kind of pop up in Luke's gospel. Um, it's interesting When he tells a parable in chapter 14, he talks about how this kingdom invites everyone in. In chapter 14, since you're right here in chapter 13, just look over at the next chapter. This is the parable of the great banquet. It begins in verse 15. And then um, this invitation goes out. Um, but what we know about it in verse 15 is this parable is about the kingdom of God. Again, uh, verse 15, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Then he says, I want you to go out and invite all these people to come. And all these individuals that have been invited have excuses not to come and be a part of the kingdom, but that doesn't, that doesn't prevent the master that's throwing this party, um, from extending the invitation. Verse 21, so the servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered the servant, now remember this is a parable, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room at the banquet. And then the master told the servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them or compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So here's where free will begins to enter in. There were some that said, no, you know, I don't want to have any part of it. But God is compelling people to be a part of the kingdom and what we find taking place is it's available for all kinds of people, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Uh, and and so this is what Luke does in his gospel. He keeps kind of spotlighting these people that are often overlooked. Any thoughts there? Now, this idea of the, the uh, ethnic... Um, Breath of the kingdom of God is something that I think <laughs> we're very familiar with because, you know, all of us here online here today are part of the Gentile crowd that has been incorporated. The, there's a bigger issue, though, and the bigger issue, I think, is, is this universalism uh, in Luke that goes out and compels people to be a part is this only talking about the breadth of the kingdom of God, or is it also talking about the depth of the kingdom of God in terms of God uh, bringing people to Mm -hmm. himself so that all people will be a part of this banquet? So maybe you have been introduced to a theological school called universalism. Maybe you haven't. But uh, very early on in church history, um, there was a thread of of, uh, belief that God in due time will save all people. So this goes really kind of beyond the social and religious elements that we were Mm -hmm. talking about in Luke. What it does do is it begins to take these people that are sometimes called sinners, that's said 17 times in the gospel, Uh, Jesus having table fellowship with those that religious people didn't want to have anything to do with, and the unique emphasis on the Samaritans in this gospel as well, where you have the parable of the good Samaritan, the one that is the hero of the story. Women, too, are a part of this circle that Um, In a chauvinistic, male chauvinistic world, um, women play a critical role, uh, not only in the life of Jesus, but in the purposes of God as well. So the way I put it down here is, um, while Jesus does not fully succeed in freeing women from the shackles of their societal repression, he specifically is including women among those for whom the kingdom of God is good news. This is a freeing concept for people uh, in general that have been pushed to the margins and for women in particular who live under an oppressive time. So this universalism, here's my question. Is this universalism in Luke only about ethnic groups or is it also talking about individuals? Here's the bigger issue. Is Luke suggesting that they're in God's overall purposes, that all people will eventually come to faith, that all people will be saved? Now, those of us who cut our teeth in evangelical Christianity probably kind of have a resistance to this internally because we've been conditioned all our life to think of salvation only in terms of personal choice, my personal choice of trusting Jesus as my Savior. And we have overlooked um, this, this other part of the scriptures that seems to be inclusive. For example, as all men were condemned in Adam, all will be made uh, new in Christ. That's Romans chapter five. So what we're talking about here is a very difficult topic because it causes us to think in new ways about how you bring all these different scriptural references together. And if you do some other readings, you'll find there, there's a lot of them, that there's not one holistic individual perspective on this, that there's a lot of different passages of scripture, and how they're brought together are is quite challenging, uh, in all honesty. So the bigger issue is is Luke suggesting that not only all different kinds of people will be saved, but that all people will be saved as well. And so here's the way I put it. If the width of salvation in Luke's gospel is inclusive of all kinds of people, what about the depth of it? If it's God's universal will to fit in the whole of humanity under the canopy of salvation, then... How do all people ultimately be a part of that restoration when it comes? So here's where we need to dip our fingers into the book of Acts. Go over to Acts chapter 3 for a moment. So Peter heals um, a crippled beggar in Acts chapter 3. And Luke's writing about uh, this first miracle that is done after the day of pentecost is followed up by a speech uh that peter gives and if you come down to verse 17 of acts chapter 3 here's what peter says now remember this is the same author luke in the gospel and in the book of acts this is interesting it says now brothers i know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So there's this idea of a restoration that's coming. And in some way, the second coming of Christ is interconnected with this coming restoration of all things. And that's a phrase that appears several times. In particular, Paul uses it dramatically in the book of Ephesians and in the book of Colossians. So, I, you know, I'm not going to be able to solve this problem for you. There's these individual moments where we find individual decisions, but then there's other passages under the sovereignty of God and in the fulfillment of his purposes in the world where everything is restored and everything is reconciled. And somehow we are left to see how these two things fit together. Now, maybe here's a way of thinking about it. So one of the things that we find in the gospel of Luke, in chapter 10, There is a question that is addressed to Jesus um, in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse, not Acts, I'm sorry, uh, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, there's an expert in the law that comes up, and his motivation is not real good, because it says here in verse 25, The expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, and then he asked this question, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be a part of the life of the ages to come? What must I do to be part of the kingdom that is coming? And here's what Jesus says love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So in other words, everything is kind of summarized in love God and love your neighbor. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Love God, love your neighbor, and you have found life. The man wants to back out of it. He says, it says here, he wants to justify himself. So he asks a follow-up question, and who is my neighbor? And that's where you have then the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan is the one that stops and helps the individual that had been um, accosted along the road. And the question at the end of the parable is... Which of these individuals that came by this man that was laying on the side of the road, which one was a neighbor to the man? And the expert in the law in verse 37 says, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. In other words, the way you find life is by recognizing even Samaritans are your neighbor. Samaritans were hated people by Jews. They hated the Samaritans. And yet, the Samaritan's a hero. And here Jesus says, Go and do likewise. Love even your enemies as yourself or your neighbor, as in this passage. So, what's interesting here is the way that life is portrayed through the teaching of Jesus and the parable that he gives is by loving God and loving all people as your neighbor. And in this context here, there's no sinner's prayer. In other words, it's, it's action. This is how you live your life. This is how you treat other people, which is interesting, because a question that is often stated within churches, especially churches that have a strong heart for foreign missions, is that, well, everybody needs to say the sinner's prayer to be saved, rather than this answer teaching them to love their neighbor and love God. So here's where, again, we've all been trained in various ways and conditioned in various ways, and the Bible is not as simple as that. It it has a lot of information that has certain aspects that we feel comfortable with and other aspects that kind of leave us uh scratching our head and and luke tends to emphasize some of these things in his gospel and then repeats it in the book of acts so i've been talking the whole time any thoughts questions
1: i have a couple for you (laughs) um You know, I'll do the one I just thought of first, which was when you were um, at the very end there. Wouldn't that kind of go under the umbrella maybe of you will be judged by how you meet out judgment type thing? So maybe if you are-
0: Do others as- you would have well, to do unto you
1: type no time. no D- um judge not lest you are also oh,
0: okay mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you
1: know cause who knows you know no one knows yeah. what god has in mind for us mm-hmm. but i was also couldn't stop thinking that maybe matthew 20 also kind of reinforces the thinking here that's the parable where um jesus told about the the vineyard owner going out and at the early part of the day mm-hmm. you know he mm-hmm. hired a bunch
0: and mm-hmm. midday
1: and it you know five minutes before closing and then paid them all the same
0: yeah yeah very could very well be uh a parable that is suggesting that uh, people that um we wouldn't anticipate are brought in uh into the kingdom even in the parable at a very late date uh, timestamp in the day. So yeah, and
1: we're not supposed to grumble about it either.
0: No, but the, those in the parable did because. Right, considered right. It unfair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could be, there might be some connections there as well. I think the bigger connections though, don't come until the writings of Paul. And I, I'm going to give you a couple of them. Let me see what slide it's on. Okay, I'll get to it. It's in uh, the slide after this one.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> uh, <clears throat> any other comments, uh, questions at this point? Okay, so, so I'm considering the question, is there kind of a universalism in the Gospel of Luke? So let's um, think of it this way. Um, If grace and compassion on all people, all different kinds of people during the earthly ministry of Christ is evident in the story that Luke says, wouldn't that same type of grace um, be an ongoing need for all generations that are to follow in other words would jesus be any less gracious by virtue of the fact that we live 2100 years later than those that were touched and healed by him in the first century and uh so that leads to all kinds of questions sometimes question leads questions lead to other questions is the remedy over sin suffering sickness only available for some and for all of eternity now that'll bring in other questions um do people have additional chances um even after they die so there's all kinds of other things connected to this are those conditions are there conditions attached to it and what conditions would those be so this is where sometimes Different theological systems will try to answer the questions in in some things that you don't even find in the Bible. For example, within Roman Catholicism, this is where you get the idea of purgatory. It's the idea of God conditioning you and making you ready for eternity, that type of thing. Although there's no verses that actually suggest that anywhere in the Bible, but that's part of the tradition of the Roman Catholic theology. Uh, can God off? Uh, can God's offer of grace be both non-transactional and non-exclusive? Um, could His offer of grace um, be to those who have never heard of Christ around the world, or are embedded in other uh, world religions? So it gets quite complex. Um, is it possible to think that God's way does not? necessitate eternal rejection. Uh, and that, course, brings in the topic of hell, which is a topic that is a very complex thing in and of itself because you don't find it in the Old Testament, and most people make a big deal of, of it using one word in the Gospel of Matthew, and that's Gehenna. But other than that, you really don't, other than God's judgment, you don't find the concept of hell in any of the epistles. Um, What you have is God's judgment or God's wrath against the way the world is working. So what I'm trying to suggest here is it's very hard to be dogmatic on some of these things because the scriptures don't seem to speak in one voice uh, from, from one book to the other on this particular topic. Um, if you really want to stretch your mind a little bit, I have it over here. Let me show you a book. There is a, um, there's a book written by David Bentley Hart. Uh, it's called that all shall be saved. And if you, if you, this guy is a graduate of, uh, of uh, a uh, let me see, let me see he's a uh, Eastern Orthodox scholar of religion I forget where he graduated from but this book is by Yale University Press very heavy reading um, but what he does in it is he he takes all the passages that you find in the New Testament and he says. You've gotta you've gotta you gotta wrestle with these things because it appears that in many of these writings um there is an element that God's going to reconcile all things to himself. And so when you when you look at his case in point of suggesting that the purpose, because this is what we're talking about in Luke, the purposes of God, the sovereignty of God, um, that there are passages, and I'm trying to find words at real quick. Hold on. So he uses some things here. He has one chapter that says, "What is judgment?" A reflection on biblical eschatology, and he um, talks about the different passages here's the one that i mentioned earlier this is romans 5:18 and 19 so the, uh, so then just as through one transgression came condemnation for all human beings so also through one act of righteousness came re- rectification of life for all human beings for just as by the uh, heedlessness of the one man the many were rendered sinners. So also by the obedience of the one, the many will be rendered righteous. And he does page after page of verses that if we take a second look at it, we go, man, there's other elements here that we were never told about in our religious uh, upbringing or uh, church attendance. So that's up to you, whether you want to take that on as a topic and wrestle with it. But I thought what would be helpful is um, these are the basics of, of inclusive theology. And it kind of is built on these four points. God is a loving being uh, because he is love, First John 4, 8. God sincerely loves all people in Acts 17, he says, God is not far from anyone. So there, that's where uh, you find the dialogue going on uh, Mars Hill. Then God is so sovereign over all. And so I do want to read these because it's, I think, um, very instructive to wrestle with. In the book of Ephesians, One of the things Paul does in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, is is very mind-stretching. So here's what he says. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your house Uh, in your hearts rather through faith and i pray that you will be rooted and established in love may have uh, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of christ and to know this love that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of god so here's this he's talking about the 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 width and length and height and depth of the love of christ and and so forth then when you get to uh the book of colossians um uh well one more in in ephesians in chapter 4 verse 6 um paul says this he says um this is that confessional there verse 4 says there's one body one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul has this all-encompassing idea. One last one. Colossians chapter three, verse three, which is the next uh, uh, one epistle over. So you have Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. In chapter three, there's this mysterious incorporation that is found in Christ. And you see here, Karl Barth, a theologian once said this, he says, faith is what makes us aware of and able to act on what has been accomplished already in Christ. So there's this idea of reconciliation working itself out over a course of time that God is continuing to, Bring all these things together in Christ so that you have this reconciliation uh, that takes place at the end of time. So, all of these things are things that you add together here to kind of see oh, there's other elements that talk about the sovereignty of God, not just in Luke, but throughout the New Testament. So, before we finish up tonight, um, there, you know, one of the things that you can do is kind of look at this passage uh, or this handout, rather, and and look at those passages and, and wrestle with them. Do you have some other comments or questions? OK, yeah, so- you know, I guess
1: there's so there's so, you know, there's so much in the New Testament. That relates to belief and and choice, you know. Whether it's you know, I can give you a half a dozen
0: verses. Behold, I yep. stand the dock. That really makes you know. You wonder what was the purpose of all those of all those verses? If in fact, if, if anything goes, sort of, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so
1: <clears throat> it's it's pretty hard. To, it's pretty hard to reconcile that because a lot of the New Testament is about believing and you know everything from
0: mm-hmm. you know we have been saved by grace through faith right. and that, exactly. not by ourselves it is the all gift right. of god yeah so you you do i i it i i think we would all love for the bible to be a little bit clearer in some ways there is a lot of things that yeah but this but you know that type of thing goes on a lot It seems to me that belief is such that we really, to our core, trust that God is good, that God is love, and that I'm going to embrace that love that he has for all human beings. And that becomes the portal, I guess, whereby we understand how God reconciles people unto himself. It's There's this moment in time where we finally realize God really does love me. And he has provided for me a way to be reconciled with him. and that And that brings us to the next slide, which is this idea of Luke 15, those three parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And in each of the three parables, which is a response to the Pharisees criticizing that Jesus is eating with sinners, he goes out of his way to talk about the urgency whereby uh, the one who has lost the coin, the one who has lost the sheep goes and finds this. And there's great rejoicing uh, when that one that, that has been lost has been found. But probably the most poignant of those three parables is where the father's heart is put on display when the prodigal son goes out and lives a wild life and even before the son can say i'm sorry dad just make me one of your hired servants the father puts the robe around his shoulders and and says kill the fatted calf that which is lost has come home and and the father's heart god's heart is is put on full display, especially in that parable because it's so lengthy. So Luke, again, is the only place where we have the parable of the prodigal son. So my purpose tonight is just to kind of show you one of the things that Luke is up to in the gospel, this emphasis. Um. Yes, there's... Um, but there is that yeah, but, and you can't, you cannot, you can't get away from it either. And that is, if if salvation is for every person, then yeah, but what about justice? What about the judgment of God? How does that play into it? Um, does justice demand the permanent condemnation of individuals? Uh, Does the love of God and justice of God, are they pitted against each other? How are they reconciled? Um, Can God's justice be seen ultimately as an act of restoration rather than destruction? So all of these questions come into play, and maybe what we do is we just begin by asking, is a part of justice restorative rather than punitive? And that might help us if we think about God's justice is always working toward reconciliation. Mm. Um, And so we are saved, uh, not just from punishment, uh, but we are saved from the consequences as well of the things that caused us to be um, in, in exile from God's love. So Christ saves us and doesn't exempt us from the consequences of our sinful choices but the key question then is do people carry them into the next life as well so um well when christ was on the cross he didn't say you both
1: will be with me in paradise mm-hmm. so. that's true but well, all the guy the thief on the cross had to do was believe yeah, yeah but you know
0: that you know what i'm saying i mean i'm being a little trying to humorous here (laughs) no no he's right you're right though bud and that is one there there are there's a theological stream that says that god because he honors free will will not force a person uh to believe and that we might say that's what characterizes one of those criminals on the cross um in his vindictive comments if you're the christ get us down off this cross where the other one pleads for mercy Mm -hmm. and jesus says today you shall be with me in paradise so it it it's a tough topic it's um it's one that has a lot of nuances to it and it has a lot of twists and turns to it, depending upon which author you're reading. Um, so I just wanna make you aware because it it's not as easy as a three-point sermon. It's something that's very difficult to wrestle with. I I wanna close this with this idea of the inclusive nature of love. And I want you to think about it. I'm not making any comments on it. I'm just, it's a, just kind of a way of wrapping up this inclusiveness that's found in Luke's gospel. So I'm just going to read it because I think it helps us. If we are to take Jesus seriously to love our neighbor as ourselves, then God cannot genuinely love me without loving those that I love as well. So long as I love my neighbor as myself, I can neither love God nor worship him unless I believe that he loves my neighbor as well. To think that I can love my neighbor and love a God I know punishes my neighbor eternally is logically absurd. To love God is to approve of his actions. As a matter of logic, either I do not love my neighbor as myself or I cannot love God with all my heart. Because the destiny of creation and the nature of God are inseparable. Since God is completely responsible for his creation, it also morally defines him. Theologically, this is called the problem of evil. In other words, if God is good, why, why is there so much evil in the world? And if God is not going to reconcile it and make it whole... Why did he create in the first place? In other words, if he knows that he's going to eternally condemn people, wouldn't it be more an act of love to choose not to create? So things these are theological constructs that I think are difficult. They're very difficult to wrestle with. And because they're so difficult, that's why people like, they like simplistic answers. But uh, all I'm telling you is if you read closely, you'll find the deeper and more closely you read, it doesn't help. It only makes it a little bit more complicated. And that's okay, that's okay. Okay. That's what I have for you tonight as if that's not enough, right? That's a that's a hard topic, but it's one of those things that I think helps us to feel some of the nuance that you find not only in Luke's writings, but in other parts of the scripture as well. Do you have any other comments or questions that you want to, uh, to make before we say good night? Well,
1: in the last... In the last battle, C.S. Lewis delves into this a little bit in his last chapter, and mm-hmm. it's a really good chapter to read, even if you don't read the rest of the book. It's called "Further On and Higher Up" or something like that.
0: All right, and that's in which book?
1: The Last Battle. Last battle. The last one of the Narnia series.
0: Well, he's a there's a deep thinker for you, C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Yeah, he really is. Yeah.
1: And, you know, these are kids books, but they have they speak to the adult also. Mm-hmm.
0: Excellent. Other thoughts, comments, questions before we say good night. All right. Well, I hope you have a good rest of the week and uh, we'll see you soon. OK. okay.
1: Right. okay good, you. Night. good
0: night. Good night. Good night. night.